Well, good evening. I am uh, going to make a note to myself never to do that exercise again. That worked too well. I can't get your get your focus, but I'm so uh, for guys like me that stand up here, that that's one of the most beautiful sounds in all the world and and I don't mean that to sound hokey. It really is wonderful to see everybody chatting and and getting to know each other and and talking about their lives because that's Really, what the, the Psalms is going to be about is, is a real-life encounter uh, with God uh, through an Old Testament lens. Uh, my name is Buck Anderson. I'm the pastor of leadership development here at Grace, and I am privileged to have this opportunity uh, this week and the remaining uh, four other times after this week that we'll get together. We'll make sure that the calendar is laid out for you. But if you're involved in the morning study, this study is slightly different. We'll do some different studies than what Tristy's going to do in the morning. Uh, today will be the same thing. Um, as she and I worked together this morning on Psalm 1 and the introduction, we'll do introduction to the Psalms in Psalm 1 here tonight as well. But then our paths, much like the two paths in Psalm 1, we'll figure out which is the good guy, which is the bad guy later. Uh, we'll diverge. I can promise you now, Tristy is the good guy. I know, who, I know my boss, and they're kind of close. So, But I want to uh, hopefully encourage you and, and inspire and aspire us all to, um, to look at the Lord through a different lens. Uh, I had the privilege of being an Old Testament major at Dallas Seminary in the mid-80s and studied under a guy named Alan Ross. And uh, other than the book of Genesis, his forte was the Psalms. And I had the privilege of working with him and learning from him and uh, picked up a, just a, a, a smidgen of what he knew. And uh, hopefully we can, we can deposit some of that in you. But moreover, this is a story about, or this is a time of, of encountering the Word of God uh, with a real-life lens. Um, the word I used this morning was, is the book of Psalms gives us permission to be ourselves. It's one of the few books in all the Bible, and I'm going to show you that the, really the book of Psalms is one entire book that lets us be ourselves as we really are. Because the Lament Psalm, for example, you've got David in the middle of the Psalms, throughout the Psalms saying, Lord, how come? Why is this going on? How long will this endure? And we sort of have been taught, we you don't talk like that to God. And the scriptures through the psalm allows us to speak that way and to, in essence, heal ourselves as we take a look and are reminded at the goodness of God and, and in fact, can move from lament to praise all in about 10 verses at times. And it's a wonderful guide uh, for us to follow, but, but it's real. And we're going to see the gamut of things talked about in the psalms. Moreover, the psalms is about music. Uh, the word psalm in Hebrew, mizmor, means melody. Uh, often what would happen is David or others would write a poem and they would either set it to music themselves or they would turn it over to the choir director who would then make an arrangement. Now, in your packet, and we do recommend that you get a packet because we'll be able to do the psalms not only this summer but next. We will not cover all the psalms uh, in here this summer. Uh, between the two morning and evening sessions, we will, I guess, or almost all of them, but we'll also have opportunity to come back next summer. We also think it's an excellent study for you personally, as you wish, and there's some introductory material. I'm going to just lift a few things out of the introduction. You can try to follow along or just, because nothing I'm going to say is not in there for the introduction, but I just want to make sure that we sort of get on the same page. And if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, just remember that we're moving into a different type of literature, We've come off of uh, the book of Titus in the spring, for example, typical Pauline book. Uh, I love that kind of literature. Kind of the lawyer in me comes out, you know, point, 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 therefore, 
point, 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 therefore. He's got therefores that are connected to therefores and then explain the therefore. It's a classic, linear, logical, rhetorical way to communicate. Uh, music allows for a little different kinds uh, of expression. Uh, we're familiar with all kinds of poetry and music uh, in our culture and language, but it all has structure. It all has some kind of order, and so do the Psalms. We're going to see that there's five major types uh, of musical expressions and poetic expressions in the Psalms. And as you might imagine, uh, the, the artist in us, the poet in us, is going to come out a bit. And, and as we read these psalms and are embraced by them, we'll see some of the expressions of the soul be allowed uh, to emerge unlike any other literature in all the scripture. It touches some of the deepest, um, sometimes darkest areas of our life and provides from the same soul can come lament and then praise. And it, it deals with the full gamut of life. So I hope that we can sample some of that just a bit. I got on my little dish network thing or whatever I've got and said, like in the 800s, you know, all the music channels that you can put on in your house. And I just started writing down some of the genre, the types of music that we're familiar with, just to sort of get us in that same mood. We're very familiar with each of these and some more than other, but they would all have a different way of developing and delivering what it is the lyrics were all about. Some of them are pleasing to us, some of them are not, but they're a medium, a vehicle in which we can understand the lyrics and the overall musical expression. So we got to kind of strap on our guitars or get out our flutes or whatever your musical inside and background is and sort of dust that off again because that's our best way really to get a good glimpse of the psalms. You've got a handout on your, ta- on your table that I should have included in the packet. It's entitled Classifications of Psalms. I'd really appreciate it that you just stick that in your notebook It's one of the best guides to really help you understand where each type of psalm fits, what kind of psalm it is. Uh, It'd be like if if we didn't understand rock and roll, somebody would explain, well, this is a particular way of expressing music in this particular beat or jazz or something along those lines. These are the ways that the Hebrews wrote songs um, and uh, became very important, obviously, to the New Testament. We're going to see in a moment. But it also helps you see, for example, take a look at Roman numeral 2, the individual lament, expressions of confidence in God or thanksgiving. This is going to be a a very large percentage uh, of the psalms. In fact, the largest percentage, 39% of the psalms, will come from that component. But notice the characteristic elements of laments. There's like, like songs that we would have. We'd have a couple of lyrics and then a guitar solo or whatever. They would have the same kind of a thing where you would address yourself to God, cry out for help, and through that structure would actually move yourself toward praising of the Lord as you recalled his previous goodness to you. You recalled his previous rescues, uh, of, of his rescues of you. And so that kind of structure is going to be found whether it's a hymn or a lament, a communal uh, laments, uh, royal psalms, or uh, instruction. We're going to be taking a look at Psalm 1 tonight in just a moment, which is an instructive wisdom uh, piece of literature, a, 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 one of the rarer kinds found in, in the psalms, but nonetheless serves as a wonderful introduction. So I think that's a pretty important page, and you can just see the variety of psalms and songs that God has arranged for us in the divine hymn book uh, known as the book of psalms. Uh, also, you'll see in your in your, uh, your booklet on page uh, 14, I believe, uh, the, the idea of really how Hebrew poetry works. It uses parallelism. and That's the, where you're in the Bible and you're saying, didn't this, this verse just say the same thing as the previous one? 
but only slightly differently, only slightly different. That's an example of synonymous parallelism. But you'll see there are five different kinds of parallelism, and I'd like you to sort of just think about that a bit on your own and study that, because that's the essence of how they taught. Uh, repetition is a key way to learn, and teachers today use it as well. We just say the same thing a bunch of different ways, but uh, because we've all stood before people and we've gotten that, that look of, man, you, you ain't getting through to me right now. So you've got to come a different way to make sure that you get your point across. Parallelism, saying the same thing in whether it's opposite parallelism or um, synonymous parallelism. Sometimes it builds up to a climax. A lot of the Psalms, as we'll see today in Psalm 1, uses emblem or figures uh, as the deer pants in Psalm 42. So my soul. So we think about a deer thirsting for water and ascribe ourselves to that behavior that we might be a little bit more familiar with. You'll see the Lord do that all the time. He'll use things that were a part of the culture. If he lived in an agrarian society, he's always picking up dirt, always picking up seeds, always looking at trees, explaining life through those lenses. And the Psalms do that as well. And, and parallelism is a very important part of that. The book of Psalms is, in fact, one book. It has 150 chapters, if you will. It has an introduction, Psalm 1 and 2. It has a conclusion, Psalms 146 through 150, which is this huge praise fest, because at the end of these five major sections, 1 through 40, or 3 through 41, and 42 through 72 and following, the, the theology of God is built. It's very much like the Bible. There's basic things about the Lord early in the Bible, creator, ruler, all those sorts of things. And then it sort of moves along to elementary school and then junior high and high school and finally to graduate school by the time you get to some of Paul and Peter's letters. Same with the book of Psalms. Very basic introduction. We'll see tonight in Psalm 1, kind of a black and white approach to life, classically of wisdom literature. No gray, just good or bad, and will and we'll be aspired or repulsed by those particular types of paths. And then Throughout the Psalms, he builds toward this grand uh, presentation of the Lord. And finally, the psalmist can't help it anymore, and he begins to praise the Lord in Psalm 113, and then a little bit more theology, and then again in Psalms 120 through about 134, he praises the Lord again, and then a little last-minute theological discourse, and then finally in Psalms 146 through 150, the hallelujah psalms, just hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord because he has done these things, and we're going to talk about the importance of that word. So like any book where we would look for structure, Psalms has structure in itself. Admittedly, it's a 150-chapter book. It's a rather long book, but it nonetheless has a path, and we can follow it. It is a book about music, so we would expect there to be musical terms. Often David would, would write a psalm, probably in poetry form, and then turn it over to his chief musician. He might tell him to arrange it. He might tell him to arrange it lightly. All these words appear in the Psalms and inspired instructions from God through the human writer of how God wanted the music arranged. It be for a choir. This particular psalm might be for a soprano. Within Psalms, there would be sections for altos or sopranos as the Levitical choir was given instruction. Strings might accompany this one. There might be an octave change over here, a, a crescendo or the building up of something. We're familiar with the word sila. It, it basically means to pause and reflect upon what had just been said. And so the idea of crescendo often accompanies a sila. 
We might pause or uh, the voice might be asked to vibrate or uh, a particular psalm or a song as they're described, a, a poem or a praise hymn are the four main terms that you'll see throughout the psalms for various types of music, as we would expect. Psalm 150 alone contains all sorts of different stringed in, or instruments, some of them strings, some of them not. Notice uh, the trumpet, the harp, the lyre, which would be more like a, a guitar, the timbrel, which is... Uh, um, tambourines, uh, stringed instruments, the pipe or a wooden uh, reed of some kind, loud cymbals and resounding cymbals. There are many other types of instruments found in the Old Testament and throughout the Psalms especially, but those are just found in Psalm 150 alone, the last of all the Psalms. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord with the accompaniment of music, divinely inspired instructions from the Lord. The Psalms are an inspired collection of Hebrew poetry and songs that arise out of experience with which we can all identify. I can't think of any life experience that human beings have undergone that is not talked about or touched upon in the Psalms. Whether it is uh, times of prosperity, which we'll see some of that today in Psalm 1, adversity, holiness, sinfulness, despair, joy, thanksgiving, praise, or worship, the Psalms touches all of those and many more. It is the soul of the Bible. It is the passion of God revealed uh, through the human spirit and the human soul, giving us permission to be fully human uh, and to enjoy our humanity, even in this age, even as we still struggle with sin, uh, the idea of communicating and expressing our desire to be removed from this, uh, of why do the heathen rage? Lord, why do the wicked rule at times? Have you forgotten me? Two great questions throughout the Psalms. How long and how come? Uh, When and why uh, is this going on? And it makes for good reading. It makes for good expressing. And so we uh, hope to be guided by the divine author, God, and the human authors, often David or Asaph or others. But if we don't identify with it, we're going to miss the point. So I hope that we have permission to uh, rejoice and weep, sometimes all in the same psalm. Probably the two main thoughts of of the book and what it's intended to do is to uh, emit praise and worship. Two major themes seen throughout uh, the Psalter. Those two words bear a little bit of thinking about. We kind of use those words a lot, and we sort of define them by the way we sort of morph them down. Praise and worship means singing. Uh, Well, it's bigger than that in the Scripture. Praise is a way of life and a, a response to God for who He is and what He's done and to extol and to speak of those attributes of God and those actions of God is true biblical praise. We're going to see even at the end of the Psalms where the command hallelujah comes about. We'll take a look at that a, a, a bit later in our study, but it's a, it's a com- combined word, three components. Halal, the basic Hebrew word to praise. You is the masculine plural command. Down here we would say y'all. Y'all praise Yah, short for Yahweh. Let us all praise the Lord by speaking of Him, by talking about His attributes and His actions. And then when we fully understand those attributes and actions and speak them back to Him and each other, then we are moving into what the Scripture would know as worship. To bow down, literally the Hebrew word means. To recognize the greatness of something and to show yourself as submissive to it, as it is greater than you. 
Uh, even in silly times where we'll see in a, in a sports context, uh, an athlete has a great day and you'll see the fans just kind of bowing down, that idea of extolling some great performance or whatever. Uh, that is the idea, of course, in the worship of God uh, as well. There is some grandiose scenes in the Old Testament. I happen to have some very rare photographs here for you of <laughs> Solomon's temple. Just, I snuck them out of the A&M library. But the, the, the scale is really what these little images are all about. If you, have you ever been, especially up north in, or in the east, uh, one of my favorite places is to go, I had to go to some conferences at Princeton, and, and you go to the chapel at Princeton, which is a pretty good-sized church, and you walk in, and then you just look up, and there's this, at the altar, this huge spire that goes up, and it's intended to make you feel pretty small. And you kind of walk in against the walls, and you see... There's a guy buried right there, you know, Jim Smith, 1640. And all of a sudden you go, wow, that stuff has gone on before me. Uh, people have, have existed before me, and I, am, I find my proper smallness. Because the Lord does not see us as, as unimportant, but he wants us properly in our place. And the Psalms help us do that. And the architecture of the approach to God seen throughout the Psalms and what these guys and gals would have experienced reminded you daily that God is big and we ain't. And that's a good balance to hold. And so the scope of the, of the, the entrance into the, the temple here is you even see things like the, uh, the, the water where it would be a place for the cleansing. Uh, that, that side view just amazes me. That's, you know, I've got a little barbecue pit in my backyard, but that's pretty serious uh, barbecuing right there. That's a, you know, a one-story barbecue pit. Now when the scripture says that, that the, the sacrifices of, of humans are a soothing aroma to the nostrils of God, it takes a pretty good uh, barbecue to reach the nostrils of God. The size and scope is really what's in play here. Notice the, the size of the folks and the, uh, the, the grandeur of the doors. The smoke emitting and the size of the Levitical choir is as they would gather, Jewish males, 30 years or older, three times a year, the Old Testament tells us, had to go to Jerusalem, had to go up to Jerusalem, because it didn't matter whether you came from the east or the west or the north or the south, you went up to Jerusalem. It was physically higher. We say we go up when we go north, because it's north on our map and we focus that way, but the up is true ascendance here. There will be some psalms that we'll study our last night called the Psalms of Ascent. Songs that you sang on your way to Jerusalem for Passover, for 50 days later for Pentecost, and at the end of the summer for the Feast of Trumpets, which culminated two weeks later in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Wonderful cycles that reminded you of who you are in the Lord and your need for cleansing, but also your need for celebration. So it was time of great festivus, festivities. I can remember going on vacations in our, you know, Ford station wagon singing ridiculous songs. But every summer we did the same thing. The songs are a center a little better, I'll grant you, but we're all familiar with that sense of tradition and that time of, of festivity. Uh, the, the Levitical choir would have led us when we go to Jerusalem, and they would have had those types of instruments that we saw in Psalm 150, and they would lead us all in collectively singing the great hymns of the faith, literally the inspired hymns of the faith as seen in the Old Testament in the book of the, of the Psalms. And finally, maybe inside for a most solemn occasion, 
the trumpets would resound and the, the chief choir uh, leader would uh, lead not only the Levitical priests, but also those that had been assembled that were allowed entrance and singing unto the Lord. Uh, of course, the Lord was just on the other side uh, of, a, of a huge veil. And that image that God was literally there helped them. And now in our era, we bring God in with us as he is in the person of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so collectively as a church, we are singing to the Lord just as they were. His presence is just as real. But these are wonderful pictorial reminders of that anyway. C.S. Lewis has this quote that, that I sort of like um, because I think especially guys think we have trouble praising. I'm going to try to debunk that. In any area of life, one naturally praises what one appreciates. In fact, that praise is part of the enjoyment. It doesn't matter whether it's sports or flowers, sunsets, children's cars, great books, or anything else. To enjoy something fully, one must speak of it. Think how hollow the praise would be if you simply uh, noted something. If I was going to praise Don and, and I just happened to just take some notes. Well, he's, a, he's an excellent dentist. I, I appreciate his work in this Texas Education Authority and all these things. He was an elder at the church. All these kind of dry things as, a, as opposed to saying, let me tell you about this guy. He's wonderful. He does this and this and this to enjoy something fully. One must speak of it. It's not an intellectual uh, exercise. It's an engagement. I, this, this point was driven home to me very powerfully when, when Val and I and the kids moved here in, in July of 06. That was our first year here. And we wanted to get involved in the community. So we had a freshman that was going to Consol, and she was going to be on the swim team. So we started going to swim meets. Obviously, we bought you know, the tickets to the Consol football games, you know, five bucks or whatever. I'm going, all right, th- this is great. Then I said, honey, I think we ought to go to these, these Aggie football games. I think we really need to jump in. So I got online. And I said, come here, honey. How many zeros is that? Right? I've never seen that many. So I started scrolling down and finally found something that we could afford. You guessed it, in the zone. I didn't know what the zone was, okay? So we buy our tickets. They come in the mail. I go, over. row 33, seats one and two, section right smack in the middle. It was perfect. So we get there, we're walking up. Took, somebody told me how to do the elevator or the escalator, so we took that up, and I showed the guy. I said, Where, where's this ticket? And he goes, right up there. Well, how far? Well, there's 36 rows in the whole section, sir, and you're in row 33, okay? <laughs> About the middle of the second half, we made it up there, you know. <laughs> yeah, but halfway up there, that's why everybody does the stuff at A&M, you know. They, they're tired. They have to bend over. <laughs> And there hadn't been a vendor up in the zone since it was birthed, I can promise you. No, no one could handle it. Maybe a cotton candy guy, I don't know. But, and once you get up there, you better stay, okay, because there's, there, you can't physically make it back. Well, because we're up there and sort of stuck together, I got to know some of my buds up in the zone, the season tickets holders. Larry sat one row over and one row down. I'm not making this up. Larry had a hat on with two cans of water with the straw that came into his mouth. Texas Aggie, through and true. And we started talking about the games, and all of a sudden, it was a pretty good year, the first year in 06, we're scoring some touchdowns, and the next thing, Larry and I are chest bumping. We're high-fiving. We're talking about that block. We, did you see that pass? We were praising the athletes and what we extolled about them. If you enjoy something, you will speak of it. That is praise. We go hunt, hunting with the, some of the pastors here. 
Talk about turkeys, for heaven's sake. Brad's excellent talking about turkeys. Praising turkeys. Guys can praise, okay? The ladies, I know you love, your expressions are beautiful, but guys, we can praise as well because we appreciate things and speak of it often. What I hope to do in this study is to wet our whistle to delight ourselves in the Word of God, as Psalm 1 will talk about, and speak of it with the same exuberance. Um, the Psalms are important to the Old Testament for a couple of reasons, and obviously more than this, but here's uh, one or two. Turn to Psalm 3 for a second. I want to show you something. Some of you probably already know this, but uh, it's important because the Psalms give us inspired backgrounds. Now, here's a little hint to, the, to Bible study. The Bible assumes you know the Bible. So the Bible will, would have expected you to have had some encounters with some of the details of the Bible. So you come to Psalm 3, and notice now in your Bible, not in the, in the, uh, the packet that, we, that you have tonight from, on the Psalms, but in your actual Bible, my Bible says Psalm 3, and then it says morning prayer of trust in God. Anybody got something like that? Okay. And then the next little line says a Psalm of David, comma, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That phrase, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, is actually verse 1 in the Hebrew text. If you've ever studied commentaries that are a little sophisticated, you might see the commentary say, you know, 3, talking about Psalm 3, colon 1, and then parentheses 2. Because it is off one verse for every time a psalm has one of those divinely inspired backgrounds. Now, the previous phrase, morning prayer of trust in God, that's just, in my case, a New American Standard editor's help. But God had already done it for us. He reminds us that this is what David was thinking when he was fleeing from his son, Absalom. Well, where's that? You've got to know elsewhere in Samuel and Kings and elsewhere how David's life was unfolding chronologically and through the events. But now the Psalms, like Paul Harvey gives us the rest of the story. This is what David was thinking when his own son uh, had him out on the lamb, and he, after his time of, of running, of course, from Saul, now his son has uh, deposed him, and he was fleeing from him. And, of course, you might guess he writes a lament psalm. What's the deal with this, God? How is this going to play out? And he will go through the steps of the lament psalm uh, to, in essence, uh, heal himself. But the inspired backgrounds of the Psalms, not every Psalm has one, but if you'll notice the font, if you will, in which that particular line appeared, anytime that type of font appears, that's actually verse 1. And for our purposes, it's, a, it's the inspired background. We'll tend to stay with the English uh, verses, verse 1 and verse 2, but that's the inspired background. Also, as we sort of made the case already, I think the Psalms especially give us richer insights into life with the Lord, sort of that 3D expression of life with the Lord, where where expressing of of joy and pain are equally permissible, where the full gamut of life is allowed to be expressed in a different type of literature, some that might be a little bit more pleasing uh, to different folks. Uh, as, as God would have it, of course, there are those that love apocalyptic literature. There's those that love the lawyer type of literature, that love the narrative, gospel type of literature. And many of us are made uh, little fledgling poets to really enjoy uh, the rhetorical devices found throughout not only wisdom literature, but poetry and things that you'll see in the book of Psalms. New Testament obviously is greatly impacted by the Psalms as well. Fifty percent of the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament 
are from the book of Psalms. There's about 238 quotes of the Old Testament. Now, there are more allusions and references, but direct or partial quotes from the Old Testament in which a New Testament writer brings into this New Testament text. Half of those come from the Psalms. It's an important book. It was uh, the essence of, of life with God. If you were alive at that time, let's say the time of David or shortly thereafter, uh, you hung around the book of Deuteronomy, like we might hang around the book of John and Romans, and you hung around the book of Isaiah, and you hung around the book of Psalms. Those were the ones, the scrolls that were the most marked up uh, in their day. Look like our sections of our scripture, we might have a little bit more finger smudges around them. Those were the, the daily dealings with God, and those uh, at the heart of that, the book of Psalms. And, and in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, speaking of the spirit-filled life, one of the, what does the spirit-filled life look like? And he gives all sorts of indications, and one of them in verse 19, speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, three of the types of psalms that we saw as classified. Singing and making melody in your heart, and that's uh, that word uh, psalming, if you will, uh, in your hearts to the Lord. The divine hymn book was a part of the New Testament early church, and uh, much to, like today, those types of, uh, of expressions are very valid. So uh, I want to switch on over now to Psalm 1, and you can... Uh, do it a couple of different ways. You can uh, get out your, your, uh, the packet that we've uh, got for you and follow along. Tonight is a little differently, a, different, a little different, obviously, because typically, like next week, you would have hopefully prepared a bit in Psalm 2, and then we'd have some time to uh, see some things together. Uh, we might say, okay, spend a couple of minutes now at your table and and, and discuss these observations or make some observations, and we'll then work our way through the Psalms because we've kind of had a shared experience. I'm a little ahead of you this time, so it'll be slightly different where I'll present the Psalm a little bit more, but we're going to actually, in verse 1, do a little study at our tables just to make sure uh, that we dust off our skills of observation. Uh, but, to, but primarily, uh, that's going to be the order that we're going to follow. And in Psalm 1, of course, uh, the beauty of the imagery uh, in this nice little wisdom psalm. It is the first of all the psalms, and it serves with Psalm 2, which is why I wanted to do Psalm 2 next week, uh, as the sort of one-two punch that God wants to get us going with uh, in, in this huge book, the book of Psalms. I think the key verse is in verse 3, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of waters, but let's move up to that image and, and allow this book uh, to sort of unfold for us. And so however you want to get the Psalms out, if you look in your packet, you'll see one whole sheet has all six verses and there's observation pages. In your own Bible is fine, whatever you want to do as we study this together. Uh, in this particular Psalm, again, it serves as an introduction to the whole Psalter uh, and it sets the tone for two major themes that you'll see not only in the book of Psalms, that you'll see in all wisdom literature, but you'll really see throughout the Bible, uh, the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly. Uh, in our day, we say believers and unbelievers. In their day, they said the righteous and the wicked, because at the heart of it was how were you related to God? Um, Genesis 15, 6 says that Abram, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul steals that, quotes it in Romans 4, does a good job of, of saying he got it from Moses. He does a nice little footnote 
But nonetheless, that idea is not Pauline. It is from Moses. Early in the book, the whole book of the Bible, Genesis, we see this idea that my faith, your faith, in what God has revealed results in a right standing before God. That's the righteousness that has been now ascribed to our account or imputed into our account, according to Romans 6. The same thing happened back in the book of Genesis. And the righteous, those that have a legal correct standing before God, guess what? Are expected to behave rightly. And those that do not have the righteousness of God, or so-called the ungodly or the wicked, because primarily that is how they behave. And so those terms uh, are legal in one sense, and they're also experiential in another. So, to the righteous, we need to be careful to heed the warning of to not live like the ungodly. And that's exactly what's going to happen as he unfolds Psalm 1. He's going to tell us what not to do first, and then tell us what the righteous man does look like. The righteous man doesn't do this, but he is like this. It sets the tone for these two paths that diverge the two major themes seen throughout the Psalms, the way of the righteous who are, as we see in Psalm 1, guided by the Word of God. That's the key earmark of the righteous throughout the Scripture, that our guide is the Word of God and the way of the ungodly uh, that, that ultimately proves their way proves to be worthless, vain, and temporary. Author of Ecclesiastes says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he uses the word for vanity there. It's the Hebrew word hebel. It's the idea of breathy, of air. It's just lightweight. If, you don't, if you're not rooted and grounded in the, in the permanence of God and His strength and His supply, your life is just lightweight. And we're going to see in this chapter, or in Psalm 1, he's going to use the image of, uh, of wheat and how you separate the chaff from the wheat, and the, the chaff is blown away. We use the term all the time. We'll say, oh, did you go to that? I know I blew it off. Now, really what happened is I considered it not to be weighty. I considered it not to be important. We didn't really blow on it, but we acted as if it wasn't important. Those images are found throughout the Scripture and that ultimately reveal that which is we consider to be worthless or vain or temporary. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm, as you see in your um, classification of psalms, sort of the scorecard of the psalms, if you will. Uh, it is uh, the, the, uh, under the fifth type of, psalm, uh, of classification and instructive. Uh, didactic says the same thing, to teach. Uh, and in particular, we'll see this particular uh, genre known as wisdom literature, wisdom psalms. I'm actually preaching this weekend as well in in big church. I'll do Psalm 112 and then next week Psalm 127. So if you hang with me for a couple of weeks, you're going to have your your fill of wisdom literature and wisdom psalms especially. Uh, And and they produce such basic, clear things. There's no gray. There's no shades in a wisdom psalm. It's black or white. It's very clear as that these two roads have nothing to do with one another. The gray comes later. The gray is really a part of life, but when we're stepping back and being reminded of the basic paths of life, it's sort of like the athlete in, the, in February, the baseball player who goes to Florida or Arizona and just practices running and throwing and hitting and sliding, basic things of his craft. And that's the basic tools of life that's going to be unfolded here in Psalm 1. 
And the contrast between the righteous and the wicked characterize all of wisdom psalms. In fact, all of wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is a big deal. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You'll see that in the Proverbs. That proper reverential regard for God. To walk carefully to make sure that he is respected. Also the love for the law of the Lord. The love for the word of God. Tonight we'll see that the the righteous man, uh, the blessed man rather, delights in the law of the Lord. We're going to see the idea that of the inevitability of retribution, which is a big fancy phrase for justice, will be meted, but according to God's plan, but it will be meted. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, things square up pretty good uh, at the end of that book, and God is asking us to trust him to bring about that justice, and thus becomes the answer to the lamenter's cry throughout the Psalms, why is this? going on, Lord. Why do the unrighteous rule over the righteous? Use of simile. We'll see this in, uh, with like or as, obviously. You'll see that in this psalm. The blessed man is like a tree firmly planted. The blessed formula, the Hebrew word asher. I remember in Genesis 29 and 30, all the ladies were having babies right and left, or one of the kids was named asher because the wife was happy or blessed to have received a child, so she named him Asher. The same word here in this blessed formula that you'll see in Psalm 1 and many other of the wisdom psalms. And terms like the way and to know, and the righteous and the wicked, and the law and meditation, we'll look at that word here in just a moment, uh, to prosper properly biblically. And then the ultimate end of the scoffer, the end of the, of the ungodly, if he is not checked, if she is not checked, is to become a scorner. Uh, one who actually plots against the righteous. So we see this piece of wisdom literature. It not only instructs people to obey the word of God, but demonstrates the wisdom of do, in doing so and the utter folly of living life apart from it. It's meat and potatoes Bible. It's basic black and white. But we need to go back to the spring trainings of life every once in a while and be reminded of these pictures of what the righteous individual looks like and what the way of the wicked looks like, so that we're reminded this is the right path. This is the good path. Regardless of the circumstances that may be luring me over here or may be causing me to lose my bearings here, we're reoriented like a good GPS system. This is the right path. Stay ye on it. The message of, the, of Psalm 1, the psalmist describes the blessed one who leads an untarnished life, or untarnished and prosperous life in accord with the word of God. And contrast the wicked who shall perish. Basic. Two roads. Which one? And talks about the description is really the essence of the psalm of what those roads look like. Let's spend a moment um, as as we meditate on this psalm. I'll be happy to read it out loud for us. But uh, begin now as as you begin your study with me and each other uh, to start to begin to think observationally. At the beginning of each of the packets that you have, there's some techniques on good observational skills and some uh, interpretive skills. Uh, We're not going to have anything like if you don't circle the word properly, you'll be thrown out. You can put triangles or deltas or do nothing. You can use pink highlighters or no highlighters. But I do ask that you engage, that you attempt to understand the document like you would the most important legal document that's ever come your way. Guys, gals, we do that at work all the time. 
the most important bank statement you've ever gotten. You want to make sure the decimal point is at exactly the right spot. This is the Word of God that we're handling uh, to go that extra mile. Like the miner described in Proverbs 2. If you mine for me, he says, you'll find nuggets of truth. Now, you don't see miners coming out of a, of a mine with a nice tuxedo and white gloves and going, how you all doing? They come out and they're all grimy, their knees are scuffed up, their knuckles are raw. They've been digging. They've got tools that they're looking for nuggets. The ore is produced time after time in that mine. So there's confidence that you have that you can go into that mine because I'm coming out with a nugget, but it may take some hard work to mine, to dig out those little nuggets. That's the same kind of mindset that I hope we have here. So let me uh, take us through this. Two main divisions. We're actually going to see three, but the two main divisions are verses 1, 2, and 3, the righteous guy. Verses 4, 5, and 6, what happens to the wicked? The righteous are going to be talked about a little bit at the end, but that's the major essence of the psalm. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a very interesting parallel, or a series of connectors as soon as this psalm unfolds. What he's going to do, he's going to follow a basic path, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, and then the judgment in which both are actually going to be mentioned. Others divide the book by the righteous, verses 1, 2, and 3, the wicked, verses 4, 5, and 6. This might be a little bit more precise, but you know, we'll settle out a court if we don't agree on that. It's, 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 it's how you see the book unfold with some of the structural markers that are there. We're also going to see uh, that the psalm is going to begin with this all-important verse, first verse, in which it overall describes this person who leads this untarnished life. And he is considered blessed, blessed or usher, this idea of, uh, that we'll talk about here. And it begins with an announcement of the blessing. It's almost as if, uh, you all remember back in the day with Johnny Carson, this is the Ed McMahon of Johnny Carson, okay? Blessed is the man, and it's sort of an attention getter. This is the one who is blessed, and it's intended to draw your attention to what is it that's blessed? What is it that one does to be blessed? How does one receive the blessing? But here's the announcement that God blesses certain individuals. Well, you've got my attention now, Lord. And that's how he begins the announcement of the blessing. And then he lists three qualifications of those that are considered blessed in this wisdom psalm. Obviously, elsewhere in the scripture, there'll be other things that we could add to this. But in this type of literature, that black and white, high-level, macro-thinking type of approach that a wisdom psalm will take, these are the three arrows that he pulled out of his quiver and shot. One, two, So they're worth noting. They have some universality. These principles will be seen throughout the scripture. 
like thread through a tapestry. You'll see them go throughout the Word of God. We learn in this particular psalm, after the announcement of the blessing, how blessed is the man, uh, this idea of blessing is that which is right. It literally means straight. I'm straight on with you, Lord. And there's a spiritual joy that comes from that. Okay? This is not the kind of blessing that we might learn from the world that if I have lots of stuff and I, I always feel good and everyone's loving me, then I'm blessed. In fact, the exact opposite could be going on. And as we see with Paul in Philippians or at Psalm 1 here, that the individual who is blessed might be going through some tough times, yet he will be considered blessed because in God's way, he's straight on with him. He's right with the Lord in that sense. He's enjoying his union with the Lord, and thus he is joyful even in the midst of trouble. So we need to be careful that we define these words that have English connotations biblically, how the Scripture really uses the words. Blessed, this idea of Asher, refers to the conditions and situation of the one who is right with God and the pleasure and satisfaction that is derived from that and that alone. God alone is sufficient to draw satisfaction from. If we're looking for God plus, and I'm happy I got this God, but I need this extra, then we fail to see the magnificence of the Lord, that He alone is sufficient. Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, I love her. She says she's the one to whom Jesus said, you have great faith. Only two people, by the way, did he ever say that to. Roman centurion in in Matthew 8, and now a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. Both of them Gentiles, smack dab in the middle of the most Jewish gospel of all the four. The least likely rising to the top to do the greatest thing. She's the one that just said, boy, if I could just have a crumb from that plate, that's all I need. She didn't need to sit down at the table with, the, with those that the, that, that the bread was intended for. But yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the crumbs. Oh, woman, your faith is great. To the Canaanite, he said, and that idea of sufficiency of God, that he is enough. He, in, him, in his person, is sufficient for us. The blessed person is right with God in that vein. He understands, she understands the Lord fully and has come to the conclusion... You're, you're enough for me. And the idea is going to unfold now, and the three qualifications of the blessing are going to unfold. We're going to do a little study now at our tables, and I want you to look at verse 1. I think I've got it up here. I don't want to give away any hints here. So, yeah. How blessed is the man. That was just the announcement that we made. So we're going to allow that Ed McMahon to stand and, and now introduce the blessed man and what he does not do in this case, or the blessed person. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, there's some layering that we're going to do here, but I want you to start by noticing the three types of people described in verse 1. And I want you to think about and do some observations at your table. That's some circling, all that sort of stuff. And then among yourselves at the table, talk about the relationship. Between the three, is there a reason, for example, that one might be listed first and then the other one and then the third? Is there a domino effect? What are the relationships between the three types of people that we're not to hang around with in verse 1? Just 
do that on your own at your table, and then we're, we'll come back and we'll find some more. So observe a little, chat a little, see what each guy thinks, each gal thinks, and then we'll come back. Three types of people in verse 1 that we're not to hang out with. Identify them, look for correlation between them. Just focus on the types of people that we're not supposed to be like. And think about relation, the interrelatedness between them. Are they synonyms? Okay, let's come back together just for a moment. Make sure we're on the same page. I want you all to have a lot of confidence the first night, okay? Everybody's going to make 100. Everybody will get a trophy, okay? You've got three stanzas here. What are the three people that we're not to be like? Not what do they do and all that stuff, but what are the classifications of the people that the blessed man is not like? What's the first one? Okay, we got a wicked. Then we got sinners and scoffers. What's the connection? Are they all the same thing? What's the connection? Okay, in sequential in what sense? Bad to worse. The intensity rises. The, ba- the word for wicked is your basic word in the Old Testament for the unbeliever. Now he or she progresses to active sinning. And then finally, scoffing against what we'll see to be the righteous. You see how the progression unfolds? Now with that little hint, let's go back and look at the verbs in the three phrases of the people we're not to be like and see if you see any correlation there. Identify your verbs. You can do it at your tables. Identify your verbs. And, yeah, we can probably figure out where it's going, but really think it through, how that intensification really looks like or what it really looks like. All right, this one's probably a little easier. What was the progression of the verbs that you see? What was the first verb? Walk. Next. Then. Somebody talk me through it. what's, What's the psalmist showing us by way of progression? As we might imagine, the verbs are going to progress in intensity also. Let's just put it in the way we talk. What what is it that he's saying? That's not rhetorical. Go ahead. Yeah. He's sitting in their meetings. Right. There's more. The level of the involvement is the last thing that we're going to look at. We've seen the progression of the type of people from the basic unbeliever who now is engrossed in sin and missing the mark, as the word would mean, finally to scoffing at the things of God and the people of God. That individual, like Wayne said, began just by walking with them. Then he, they started standing on the street corner and talking their stuff. And then finally... He's sitting down with them. What's the level of the involvement? And I really don't know the best way to, to state this, but I see a, a, uh, a relationship between the word counsel and the word path and the word seat. Everybody, it's like a good dance. Everybody's got a partner. The verbs have a partner. The, the types of folks have a partner here. And now the level of their involvement shows a corresponding connectivity. So take a look at that. See if you uh, can identify the relationship between counsel, path, and seat. Okay, as we might imagine, 
their level of involvement is going to increase in intensity as well. It's going to move from just receiving the counsel to now going, in, going with them in their path and finally sitting with the seats of the other scoffers. And what we see then in this one little verse, or it's this trilogy of corresponding linking verbs, objects, and mannerisms or methods by which God warns the righteous, the blessed man, not to participate in. The levels of involvement are the key. If you've ever written poetry or songs or something, you want to just pick the exact perfect words to make your point, have them in a structure, have them in some kind of symmetry. This is Hebrew poetry at some of its best. It instructs, it shows that level of correspondingness and intensity, and the careful selection of each one of these words sort of helps us understand the overall essence of what he's doing. Maybe it's easier seen, and you're probably already there, but let's just make sure, because I spent all this time on the PowerPoint making these things different colors. So, you know, had to go to a class and everything. It was something else, let me tell you. So we sort of started at the back. Who, who are the folks involved? Well, this, these are the people, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. Notice the increasing uh, degree uh, of, of in, in a, inappropriate behavior. Their actions, they start by walking and then standing together and sitting Their actions reflect that as well. And finally, their level of involvement or whatever this is, the the level of counsel in there, the path in which one takes and finally is so comfortable on that path that they just sit down. Uh, They're members of the club. And so the the wisdom wisdom literature lets us kind of like a doctor uh, analyze ourselves. If I'm the blessed man and I'm not enticed by walking in the counsel of the wicked, good, don't do it. But if I find myself sort of seduced by the counsel of the wicked, don't be seduced to the next level and don't be seduced to the level after that. Making your way back, as John would say, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Make your way to the light and flee from the darkness. You're going to see that imagery uh, come up again here. different way to look at it here is the progression, the intensity of the involvement. Is first what he tells us. Notice, he doesn't say the blessed man does this stuff. He says the blessed man does not do this. Ten Commandments are the same way. About half and half. I think it's four and six. Four of them says, don't do this. Six of them say, do this. And that, that, that tension is found throughout the Scripture that we're not to go there, but here. But while you're going there, don't go there. And keeping that in mind is very much a part. There is a warning. The point of the trilogy is to show that if one begins by taking the advice of the unbeliever, he will move to consider that way. And after a while be so much a part of it that he will be named among the scorners of the faith. The slow but sure slipping toward ever more a departure from the righteous way. The way of the righteous is also seen by one who lives this untarnished life. By following God's instructions, we'll move along a little bit more quickly now, but I wanted to spend a little time in, Psalm, in, the, in the first verse just to let us see the beauty that's in God's Word. A lot of people will see the progression of the verbs, but often we'll miss the different classifications of the people and their level of involvement. Uh, Psalm 1 is, as we talk about uh, this this life that's lived untarnished, who follows God's instructions, it's captured so beautifully in verse 2. But his delight, that is the blessed man, the strong contrast, not going that way, but his delight is the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. There's a, a couple of words that enthrall me here. I want to make sure we see some of the the details of the verse. First of all, there's a very strong contrast, just to master the obvious. Verse 1, 
flee that behavior. Verse 2, pursue this. In fact, you'll see that tension again throughout the Scripture. Paul does it often. He writes to Timothy, flee immorality, pursue righteousness. I'm going to maybe hit you between the eyes here a little. If you happen to be raised in a home that taught you the ways of the Lord by defining Christianity as not doing a bunch of stuff, it can easily slip into legalism. Your sense of, of who you are is, well, I'm one who doesn't do this. I don't do this. In South Texas, they'll say that dog won't hunt. You can't make it through life not just doing stuff. You've got to have a goal. You've got to be pursuing something. Both are part of how, guide, how God guides us and guards us. But to have a flea model only, F-L-E-E, is like a a prevent defense in football. It just never will score. It's always trying not to have things bad happen instead of pursuing righteousness. I love the balance throughout Paul and Peter's letters. Flee immorality, just like Psalm 1 says, but pursue righteousness. Christian life to me is like the big cattle drive in Lonesome Dove. You all remember Lonesome Dove? And they now, I'm not advocating this because they steal a bunch of cows and horses to, to go up to Montana, but they're, they're going to go up to the good grass of Montana. And, and if you were up in a helicopter and were witnessing that particular... I just get all choked up thinking about <clears throat> um, Robert Duvall and all that. As they're about to take off, if you're up in this helicopter, you would see some guys in front going, you know, whoa, we're going this way. And then the cows would all sort of lump together, the horses would all lump together, and there'd be a guy on the left, guy on the right, flankers, and then there'd be guys in the back pushing. And the guys in the back and on the sides were designed to take care of the strays, the doggies that get off, because collectively we want to go this way. If the mindset of those cows were, I want to go where that guy's going, I'm pursuing the good grass of Montana, the temptation to go east and west and south is far less. If your whole venue of life is not doing stuff and you don't have a way to go, it's so much more easy to fall off. But if you're pursuing something, and in that pursuit, watch it, you're not involved in the other things because you're so fixed upon pursuing your goal, the things that are often the entanglements are left to the side. That model, that tension is found throughout the Scriptures. The focus of the, of the guy in Psalm, two, Psalm 1 verse 2 is the Torah, the Word of God, and he delights in it. It's not burdensome. It's not, uh, Bible study, i got to study this stuff again. It's, it's, it's a great pleasure. Why? Because he's trained himself that, yeah, I'm going to get dirty, and yeah, there's some sweat getting in that mine and going for those nuggets, but I come out with nuggets every time. And every time I come out with more nuggets, I'm more delighted in the person of God. I see him, whether it be as a better writer than I thought he was, or, or, or deeper, or bigger, or stronger, or, or more loving. All the things that the Psalms are going to bring out, that's what fosters that delight. It's this idea of desire, of willingness, of, of not burdensome activity, but I want to do this. And he meditates on the, on the things of the Lord day and night. You've got to word study on your table, <clears throat> a little article I wrote several years ago that talks about the two words that appear throughout the Old Testament for meditation. This is the Hebrew word hagah. It's often translated elsewhere as growl. <laughs> it has the idea of deep, that deep inside, we might say, in our gut. 
I'm really mulling something over deep down. This is not like surface kind of thinking. This is a deep musing over the things of God. Actually, the word haga is an onomatopoeia. Now, how many of you thought this morning when you got up out of bed that you were going to hear the word onomatopoeia in a sentence? Well, you now have, and if that was your dream this morning, it's been fulfilled. What is an onomatopoeia? Something that sounds like example in English of an onomatopoeia? Buzz. Crash. Hush. Where the word, as we express, sounds like what it is that we're doing. In this case, it's the Hebrew word haga. And this is the idea, and you'll see this in, in Israel. Uh, Hasidic Jews will walk around all day and they're just going, they're just mulling over the things of the scripture. And it, it, it just sounds like, haga, 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 that deep muttering, that growl that is what we do when we're in our car by ourselves, finally coming up with that argument that we should have had in the moment of truth. Okay, we're just kind of going over the, that time. That's that concept of Haggah, that deep growl type of meditation, not a surface type. That's what delights the man of the book and causes him to come back time after time. Finally, the scripture promises that that person will have success, will prosper according to God's economy, God's way of prospering. He will be uh, like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers or succeeds. Unfortunately, verses like this at times are taken out of context and often taught, most often on TV. I don't know why, but those are the kind of, of sermons in which you say, if you do these things, you'll be wealthy uh, in the sense of lots of money or, or lots of fame. Um, that's not at all the idea of this world. Now, following biblical principles generally do result in a, a correct view of finance and the proper un- accumulation of wealth and the proper use of it, but this is much bigger than this. This is being successful in God's eyes, the way God desires things to be. And often at times, God might have us not looking all that successful in the world's eyes, yet delighting in the Word of God and being successful in His. And that's the type of success or prosperity that this individual is engaged in. Just like a tree that's how planted? Firmly planted by streams of water. Now, you'd have to do a little research to understand the idea of streams of water, but this is an irrigation ditch. There's a type of a particular word in Hebrew that describes an irrigation ditch so that the constant flow of water is guaranteed. It's not um, up to the whims and wiles of whether it's going to raid or not. That tree, firmly planted right by water, it's a fact, will grow. Okay, It's exactly what farmers are in the business of. They, they rely on that transaction. That good seed planted in good soil and properly nourished will grow. And when, some, when, it, when growth does not occur, something's wrong because the expectation is growth. That's the kind of imagery, this firmly planted tree by streams or ditches of water. It will yield its fruit in its season, not all the time. It will not wither. It won't fall away. And overall, it will be described as a prosperous tree or prosperous plant. That's what the blessed man is like. Notice it used the simile. 
One of the, one of the aspects of a wisdom psalm is the use of simile. We'll see here that this individual uses the simile of the tree. He's firmly planted. Well watered speaks of his growth or her growth. The idea of regularly fruitful is the idea of productivity. And his leaf does not wither. Its leaf does not wither. It's a persistence. That, that, that tree is always producing. There's a, a constancy to it uh, that's uh, uh, impressive. And that's what the blessed man looks like. The one who does not follow that after the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, but rather delights himself or herself in the Lord will be like that tree firmly planted. The imagery, obviously, is the word of God, is the water. It comes, gives us nutrition, and causes growth, productivity, and persistence. Well, the one who follows this will have success. Notice the statement of prosperity is outside the simile. Now we're back to just a statement of reality. He will have success. doesn't talk about the tree. He will have success. It's now reality. It will live in accord with God's word and will. That idea of prospering or succeeding is thriving or advancing, succeeding according to the standards that God has for trees and for human beings in our case. Well, the psalm has a pretty abrupt ending now as we kind of come to the conclusion because sort of like the high point of the roller coaster, it's going to come down real quick. And much like judgment often does come upon those that have not behaved correctly, and at times you and me, uh, the way of the wicked is quickly and harshly uh, dealt with in due time. The life of the ungodly, when it comes to producing for the Lord, uh, being an active member of what God had wanted for people, is relatively worthless. Now, I'm not saying human beings who don't know the Lord are worthless. They're made in the image of God. But from their production perspective, as you'll follow the image, that of the the tree firmly planted, now that's going to be juxtaposed to chaff. That's worthless. That the the wheat farmer wants to get rid of, it brings nothing of value, nothing to the table. The wicked are not so, verse 4 says, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. The way the wicked shows that there's this strong contrast with what we saw about uh, the, the righteous in the previous verses, they are, the ungodly are not like the righteous who are growing, producing, and persisting. He makes it so obvious the ungodly are instead like chaff. This, this worthless, lifeless husk, this, this very small, flaky portion of the wheat husk that's very much, much like dust and a very lightweight material that is easily blown away in the wind as it's separated in the process of winnowing. Now, winnowing is the idea. David, for example, purchased the threshing floor of Aranara in, in 2 Samuel, the high place, and that became the Temple Mount. And it was a high place because the wind was exceptionally powerful there, and, and the currents caused winds to come from all over the place, and the wind was sufficient to move off to the side the lighter weight material, in this case, the worthless material. And you can see the heavier parts of this guy's just thrown that up in the air, and it's coming down here. And that becomes what you would make meal out of. And so that's being thrown up in the air. The lighter stuff is being blown off to the side. The heavier stuff is going to come down there. That's the process of winnowing. He used images that his audience would have been very familiar with. And he's using a process, obviously, of separation of which they would have clearly known that we don't want anything to do with the chaff. That is, it doesn't taste good. It will ruin our crop if it's allowed to stay in. 
the worthless needs to be removed at the time of production, at the time of harvest. That's the metaphor. So in that vein, the life of the ungodly is worthless. There's a strong contrast, as we see, between the righteous and the wicked. Lots of images are unfolding, that of solidity and impermanence, firmly planted, chaff, productive, unproductive, basic black and white, but worth our time to go back and be reminded. Life is lived in futility if its fundamental purpose is never discovered. Think about how many lives never really discover the fuller, richer meaning of life. How many times as believers we'll see individuals who are clearly saved, who know the Lord, but have not embarked upon the way of the righteous and really sought to mine the deeper nuggets of the Lord. And their life, in a way, is less than what it could have been. In that way, it's futile. It's, it's more lightweight than it could have been. The idea in the scripture of glory, the glory of God, comes from a word to be fat. And then it moves from the literal to be fat to the figurative, just like in our language. We might say something is heavy if it weighs a lot. And if something was profound or important, we might say, that's heavy. I've got to think about that. That's the idea of giving God glory, of being seen as heavy in your life because you want to ascribe uh, to the heaviness of the Lord, if you will. That's this image that's coming through and living a, a, a life of weight as opposed to a lifeless, light type of life. Finally, the judgment in verses 5 and 6 is, is so straightforward it hardly requires any explanation. The wicked, the ungodly, will not survive the judgment. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. I think the image is, is that the judgment, like a harsh wind, the wicked can't stand it. They, they, they won't be able to stand against the power of the wind. They'll be blown off, blown away in the, in the figure. And I think you can see that as the, as the text unfolds, as it makes that strong contrast. He goes on to explain why the wicked will not stand, as it's contrasted with the firmly planted imagery of the blessed man in, chapter, in verse 3. The ungodly does not draw from the word of God. He's not heavy and rich and strong with the nutrients of the scripture and thus is lightweight and will not stand at the judgment, will not be able to survive it. Notice how the text clearly makes that delineation. The blessed individual in verses 1, 2, 3, one of the ways to see it is he or she is firmly planted, deep-rooted, good nutrition, ain't going anywhere, unlike that of the wicked. Chaff-like, lightweight, easily blown off, easily moved. And that's ultimately what will happen. And so our life with the Lord now is a life of sinking deep roots. Not to ensure our place in heaven, that's already guaranteed, but to ensure uh, our testimony, as we'll see this weekend, uh, that, that the righteous leave a trail of their righteousness and, like dominoes, affect generation after generation after generation. I've seen it in my own family and many families that I know. The first believers in their family start a lineage of faith in a particular family name and again can lead to additional individuals coming to Christ. And you see, we've all seen it in life. Whether you're young or old, you've seen the way of the wicked prove to be folly. And they're strong and 
and, and vibrant one day and yet and then gone the next. They just couldn't stand under the judgment. And that's the image that Psalm 1 very soberly reminds us of. The judgment comes out in that the righteous will be saved, the wicked in their way will perish. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word know there is, if you remember the King James Bible, Adam knew Eve, type of interpersonal intimacy. That's the same word. It's not just, he's got your name written down. I know who you are, Tim. I know your way. I know you've believed in me and you have legal righteousness and you've lived a life also uh, of, of my way. You've delighted yourself in the Lord. And when you didn't, you, 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 you shunned the life of the, of the sinner and you moved back toward the light and you sought me time after time. That's the way that he sees and that's what he knows. But the way of the wicked will perish. It will be blown away. It will not be able to stand in the judgment. And so the simplicity of of this little psalm comes out in that finally the wicked in what all wisdom literature reveals is that the inevitability of retribution, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. He's a wonderful accountant. He is very gracious as well, but there's a day coming in which the piper will be paid, and that is one of the major motivations for the righteous in Old Testament age or new to keep on keeping on. God's above the maze. He sees what's going on. You delight yourself in the Lord. You, you sink your roots. You let me worry about cleaning things up in, in, the, in the great day. But it is reminded of us often that that day is coming, and this was what God will do. It's a simple psalm. Two types of folk, two different ways, two destinies, two ways of living life. They never touch. (laughs) They're as far as east is from the west, and yet the seduction of the life of the sinner and the scoffer and the wicked is often seductive to us, and these little psalms hopefully get us back like this tree planted by the water, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Lord, thanks so much for the privilege to come together in the simplicity of a room like this and spend an hour or so in a six-verse psalm. Thank you for the depth that's there that you've revealed to us. I thank you for the, the beauty of the Word of God and its power. I pray that each and every one of us might be delighters in the Torah, that we might be lovers of not only God, but the Word of God. For we really can't say we love you, Lord, if we don't want to know you intimately. We can't know you fully until we spent some time in your, in your word. Help us do that, not only this summer and these times together, but maybe for some of us to dust off that discipline and renew a life of, of serious meditation and contemplation of the, the deeper things of the Lord. Thank you for reminding us that the path that you have graciously afforded to us is a good path, and we're glad we're on it. Help us not be seduced by the, by the wicked, the, the sinner, the scoffer. Help us not walk or stand or sit with them. Thank you, Lord, for the complexity of that little verse as we see how life is really unfolded. Thank you for reminding us, Father, of the basic principles of life, that there's a right way to approach God in a way that might seem right to a man, but in the end is death. Keep us on the straight and narrow, Lord, we ask you. Help us guide others into righteousness. As we continue our study now throughout this semester, I thank you for each one here, Lord, that We might have opportunity to 
refresh ourselves from on high each week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 2 next week, the coronation of the king, the son.